0: for tuning in to another episode of newsroom my name is katie and i will be your host as we meander into the lives of inspiring and creative people this is a hub for makers thinkers and anyone else that is doing the work that they truly want to be doing Everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast this week. I'm so excited you're here, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling very passionate about some of the issues we're facing right now as a nation. I'm angry that a sexual predator is occupying a seat in the Supreme Court, and I'm angry that the Trump administration is actively working towards defining trans people out of existence. So I'm starting to feel more of a pull to have... Conversations about some of these pressing issues on this podcast. Don't worry, I'm still going to interview the creatives of our community, but I'm also going to use this space to talk about the other things that really matter. I want to find a way to meld those two together. So that brings me to this conversation that I'm sharing today. In this episode, I chat with Sam, the founder of She Collective. She Collective is an inclusive space for all individuals to find the power they hold in their bodies through education, community, movement, activism, and intersectional feminism. To learn more about the She Collective, check out their website where you'll find more about their philosophy, their core values, information about classes that they hold, and some blog posts. They just posted an incredible blog post. I'm sorry, blog post titled Three reasons why trans, non binary, and gender non conforming folks are welcome at She Collective. And I'll link to that post in the show notes as well. In my conversation with Sam, we talk about what is inspiring her right now, maintaining momentum as an activist, her time living in Costa Rica, her experience as a doula, and how that affected her as a mother, and how she became a lactation consultant and why she opened the She Collective. So without further ado, here's Sam Walters of the She Collective. Thank you so much for joining me on the
1: podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm yeah.
0: excited to be here. Yeah. We're already rolling, so I just thought Great. let's just get right into it. Okay. So- can I ask you about something that's been inspiring you lately? Anything that may, might have happened recently that has just really kept you moving and grooving?
1: Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. I've been thinking about it a lot since on Thursday, we had this group here um, that was meant as sort of a discussion group mm-hmm. um, to, to get together women who um, feel impacted by our, per, you know, our current political mm-hmm. climate and just to discuss different ways of of taking care of ourselves and of practicing activism, Mm -hmm. you know, in our day-to-day lives. So that has been, that conversation really got me excited. I was feeling um, ever since, you know, well, all last week, I know I'm not the only one who was feeling like a lot of anger after Kavanaugh was appointed Mm -hmm. and just the discussion of um, sexual assault so rampant in the media, and and I felt like um, women's experiences were really just lost and in the conversations, and were really, um, you know, women themselves were just sort of belittled for, right. for sharing their experiences. and. Yeah. Um, it was really disempowering, um, and like I said, I know I'm not the only one who felt like that, so I was feeling a lot of anger all last week, and sort of general anger that I haven't really felt, um, maybe ever. I mean, even after the last election, there was a feeling like, okay, well, you know, that sucks, but things have to start changing, and then this sort of showed me, like, things are, that really things are not changing, um... So, but being in this group of of women on Thursday night, it was an intergenerational group. There were, I was actually, uh, myself and the other moderator, Rachel, were the youngest ones there. There were women in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, and feeling a lot of anger. You know, a few of them had been part of the women's movement in the 70s and felt like, where are we really going now? Um, but that conversation and that, that um feeling of being able to connect to each Mm -hmm. other even though our our life experiences are so different and that we are and that the the feeling or the the rage that we're feeling can be harnessed and we did a really good brainstorm about ways that we can get involved more than just like marching um, because marching as a form of activism activism that's powerful but has its own limitations Mm -hmm. so um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about after that conversation was getting more involved in my community in Lakewood. And I feel like She Collective, you know, and I say it's like a community space and it is, but I feel like it could be a lot more connected to. Um, what is going on currently in Lakewood. Oh,
0: absolutely, not just making it like a small little bubble. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's really important. And yeah. I didn't really know, I've never been one to like go to city council meetings or to um, really be active, you know, and know what's going on at city hall or anything like that. Um, but I th- I'm sort of excited to start doing that, yeah. you know? So I got some ideas of, I guess there's monthly meetings that happen at the women's pavilion. Um, that have different topics, and then the um, uh, there's a local rally next Thursday, um, and then also just being aware more of what's going on at City Hall. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, really connecting to um, the community, I think would be really fulfilling, yeah. you know? Because I, I think it could get really overwhelming to think about change in the whole political right. climate.
0: I think that you have to think about, like, the small scale and, like, where you can get a start. Mm-hmm. And then doing that is going to just keep rolling and exactly make a difference on the larger scale eventually. Yeah. And I, I was listening so. to a podcast earlier today where they were talking about maybe things really aren't going to change in our lifetime, Mm -hmm. but it's it's still so important to do the work so that the lifetime's after us. Like, you know, when many years ago, when suffragists were fighting for the right to vote, like, some of those women didn't make it to see that Mm -hmm. we did get the right to vote,
1: so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, starting the ball rolling, right? And in a way... That is really equitable and considering all different kinds of people, not just um, you know certain segments yeah. of the population. Mm-hmm. And one thing too that I've been that can feel very overwhelming, but for me is really exciting too, is the thought that we can't really. It's going to take a lot longer to change our current systems than it is just to like blow them to smithereens and start afresh. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of people who are doing really incredible mm-hmm. work of just, like, re-framing um, the way that we think about things, and and I think that they're going to be, you know, I think that I'm hoping that we're just going to continue momentum, and, and yeah, you're right, it might not be in our lifetime, yeah. but, you know, at least for our children.
0: Yeah, and how do we keep that momentum, because I feel like when big things happen, like, say, when the last school shooting happened in Florida, like, Mm -hmm. everyone was so fired up. And kind of, it happens a lot when big things like that happen. People get really, really into, like, change. And then it kind of fizzles out after a while. So how do we, how do you, have you thought about that? How do you keep that momentum going?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think part of it is recognizing how everything is interrelated. You know, about how, um... Uh, like, women's rights, it's not just a white woman's right. issue, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how it's been framed in the past. Yeah. And that's been totally, um, I mean, successful to, to, you know, get white women and eventually, you know, women of color the right to vote and things like that. But it's been really alienating to a lot of people. And it really hasn't transformed the system, as you can see by, mm-hmm. you know, the recent events. So yeah. I think at school shootings and the prevalence of guns, I mean, it's interrelated with all of these yeah. um, other Institutions that are in place really to 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 support the the current power structure. So I think if we and and people are starting to or a lot of people have been doing it for a long time, right? But I feel like the conversation has become gradually becoming more mainstream about mm-hmm. connecting those, um, you know, the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. connecting that to racism and sexism and gun violence and how all of that is interrelated. Mm-hmm. I think because it is, you're right, it's really hard to keep the momentum if you're just focusing on one issue. True. Because then people will feel like, well, I am focusing on women's rights. I don't have the energy to focus on gun rights or whatever. Um, But if you can really understand how everything is interrelated, then it's like we're all, a lot of us are working towards the same goals, you know? And we have to really build these coalitions Mm -hmm. across... Um, across like purposes, you know.
0: Definitely, yeah. yeah. I want to talk more about that, but first, let's um, talk a little bit about you. So, mm-hmm. can we go back to the beginning? Where are you from? Sure. What was your childhood like?
1: Yeah. So I grew up um, from like first grade on here in Cleveland. First in Lakewood, I went to St James for first and second grade, and then I moved to St Chris, and we moved to the Rocky River. Um, and I was there until... I mean, my parents still live in Rocky River. So um, I grew up with two very interesting... Well, their, their relationship is interesting. My parents, they're very different. My dad is a gynecologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and my mom is a yoga instructor and I guess sort of a hippie. And they balance each other out really well. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've always <laughs> been... Um, there was always a, a conversation in our in our family at dinner tables about women's health, Mm -hmm. about, you know, my dad would just at the dinner table be like, oh, you know, the rates of STDs for women, blah, 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 or, you know, talk about contraception, and it was always, like, really um, an open topic, which I thought was really cool. Like, when I got my first period, my dad bought me flowers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was very, yeah. It was really, um, it was really empowering for me, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really... I didn't realize how empowering until I heard other people's stories about how you know talking about our bodies was taboo in other right. families, and and I think that's a lot more common than how I was brought up. Yeah, I um, was always
0: afraid to tell my dad that I was on my period or anything. Right, like that. exactly, and not because he was unsupportive. Just there's a stigma. Right, exactly. Yeah. So,
1: so I feel really lucky that I was yeah. able to to have those conversations, mm-hmm. um, and that I sort of. feel like I was brought up at this crossroads of, like, evidence-based medicine and, you know, the medical industries and then, um, like, yoga and sort of the more, um, like, meditation and and holistic medicine and that view from my mom. So, um, I feel really lucky that I, I feel like I've been able to to, um, use both of those perspectives in the work that I do now. Um, And... Yeah, and I'm grateful, and I have, I'm the oldest of three kids, I have a brother and a sister, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I had a really, generally very happy upbringing.
0: (laughs) So, did you finish throughout high school in Cleveland? Yeah,
1: yeah, I went to Magnificat for Mm -hmm. high school, and then I went to um, OU, done Athens for, for college for undergrad um and then after that i was i moved and i studied creative writing english and creative writing i was wanted to be a writer and mm-hmm. i still now it takes the form more of like journal writing and poetry yeah. um and then after college i moved to new york and i and just sort of on a whim because my parents said that they were going to you know i had to start paying rent in a couple months and i was like screw you i'm not doing that I'm moving to New York, oh, right. and I literally, that weekend, I, I hitched with a friend who was going to visit some friends, and I
0: wow.
1: I showed up in New York, and I was like, okay, I'm going to make this happen.
0: With no plan already. With
1: absolutely no plan. And she was, I was there for like a long weekend, and the day before she was leaving, I was laying in bed thinking, wait, where am I staying tomorrow? Oh, I'm supposed to be staying here. I don't know. So I like made up a, I made a bunch of phone calls, and a friend of, Of a friend, Um, I was able to stay with him for a little while in Brooklyn. And then, you know, everything, I was really lucky. Everything like lined up and I ended up getting a job. I got a temp job and then, but I ended up getting a job as um, a creative assistant at McCann Advertising Agency, McCann Erickson. So that, and then I got um, a great apartment in Brooklyn and it all just like the stars aligned. It was really nice. So I was there for about a year and a half.
0: And then what took you away from Brooklyn? Um,
1: one day I was walking home from um, from like my, my lunch break, and some guy yelled at me because he was like, I was walking across the crosswalk, and he wanted to turn, but I had the right of way. Mm-hmm. And he yelled, bitch. And I like slammed the hood of his car and swore at him, and I was like, this is not me. New York mm-hmm. is oh changing gosh. me. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. So. um. It didn't feel like. Yeah. yeah, and I had had a, um, like, a mu- a couple months into living there, I was dancing, and I dislocated my kneecap, <laughs> so I needed, like, knee surgery, mm-hmm. and so I was, like, playing catch-up with those bills, and it was just, I love New York, I'm so glad I had the opportunity, but the, the money stresses just were getting to be too much. It wasn't sustainable. You know, I had all these medical bills, and then I was, you know... And I was going out and spending all my money every night anyway. You know, yeah. I'm like, I just... This is not a healthy lifestyle right now for me. Yeah. So, so what happened next? So then I decided to move to Costa Rica. My my parents have a, a little house there that's... It's like... um, uh, I don't even know. It's like, I guess, a little cottage. But it has a big yoga floor. Wow. So I decided to move down there and run it as a bed and breakfast. And um that ended up being... And, I mean, as you can imagine, a really amazing experience. I met a lot of really cool people. The The area where we are, where where the house is, is up in the mountains, and it's right near this lake called Lake Arenal. And during the windy season between, like, November and May, it's super windy. Like, the whole lake is surrounded by windmills, mm-hmm. and um, and people come from all over the world to for, to that lake to windsurf and kiteboard. And that's what brought my family there because my parents had been windsurfers for yeah. for as long as I'd been alive.
0: So you moved there by yourself and yeah. opened up a bed and breakfast by yourself?
1: Yeah, there, well, or? I, um, I there was a friend of a friend who I didn't know hardly at all at the time, but she was living in Seattle. And somehow we connected and she had wanted... To make a change. So I said, well, I'm moving down there. You want to go with me? And she's like, sure. And it could have been really, a really bad situation considering, you know, we were living in a very rural, middle of nowhere area, you know, no TV or internet or anything like that. And it, we didn't really know each other. So if we didn't get along, it would have been really bad. But now she's one of my closest friends no. and we got to we hit it off. And, and we just, our styles complemented each other really well. And she was really good at... You know, we go to the bar and just chat people up and say, you know, do you have a place to stay tonight? We have this bed and breakfast, and you should come up and, and stay. And um, so yeah, I mean, it worked. We did it. Kate and I did it together for a couple years, um, and then I, uh, I th- yeah, I think that was like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or How old something. were you then? Um, I guess like twenty four. Oh, my age. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah running a running a bed and breakfast wow. yeah yeah it was fun and then I um, so usually I would stay during the high season during the windy season and then I would come back here and like waitress or something to make some money mm-hmm. during the low season Yeah, but I had this other boyfriend down there and so I decided like the third maybe the second year to spend the whole year there so I ended up getting a job as a receptionist at a hotel during the, during the low season and he and I broke up so I was like, feeling, what am I going to do here? Yeah. Sort of isolate. My my Spanish wasn't super good at that time because we had most of our, or all of our um, our guests spoke English, you know, in some way, shape, or form. So I didn't really have to practice my Spanish all that much. Um, so I was starting to feel, like, sort of isolated. It gets really quiet during the slow season. But I had this job. I was like, well, I'll just sort of see how, how it pans out. And... And I ended up meeting my husband there. Well, mm-hmm. my future husband. He was the one of the tour guides at the hotel. Mm-hmm. And I met two one of my closest friends to this day. Um, they were receptionists, you know, various times the time that I was there. So I think I stayed at that job for about a year or something, and then I, and then I left. But Mario and I, um, you know, stayed together. And then we ended up, we were there. We ended up getting married. Maybe after being together for about 10 months, Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't able to get a visa to come and visit here, so we had to make the decision of, you know, are we going to get married, get a fiancé visa, whatever, so we got married down there. And then it took a full year before he was able to come back here, or, yeah, before he was able to get a visa to come to the United States.
0: Was that a hard decision to make, or did you just feel really, really good about it?
1: I felt really good about it, yeah. Yeah. I felt like, I know I'm going to get married to you at some point. Mm Um, if we do it here, well, if we had the fiance visa, we would have to, as soon as we came to the United States, we would have to get married and oh. there wouldn't be time to like plan anything. Yeah. Um, and his family wouldn't have been able to be involved. Right. So we were able to get married, you know, in a, in a lawyer's office in a small town there with his whole family there. And my mom was coming down at the time, or like she had been planning on coming down. So I called her. I was like, can you bring me a dress? Cause I'm going to get married. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And, um. And, yeah, no, I was really, you know, my mom told us, like, the day before we got married, you guys don't have to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to, and yeah. we were really, I I knew, it, and then it probably sounds cheesy, but I remember the first time I heard his name, and I remember the first time I saw him, and I was like, that's the guy for me. I knew mm-hmm. it right away. He didn't know it yet, but I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And clearly it worked. It worked. It worked, yeah. (laughs) So what brought you guys back here?
1: Well, we moved. um, So I wanted, I was sort of done living in Costa Rica. I wanted to like move forward and do something different. I wanted to go back to school. So I um, started grad school. I was out in Oregon, Oregon State, um, in Corvallis, Oregon. So I started grad school, and then about a month later, he Mario finally got his visa, and he was able to join me. So we lived in Oregon for about a year and a half, and I um, was studying public health, mm-hmm. well, international health, um, with an emphasis on women's sexual and reproductive health. Because I knew that, um, I mean, the English has helped me with everything, you know, yeah. because everything requires writing. Right. Um, and I really still enjoy writing, but I realized that if I was trying to make a a job out of it. It sort of took the fun out of it yeah. for me. So, mm-hmm. and you know, with my travels and I just, um, became a, a lot more aware of, um, of the need for more comprehensive women's health and to have a better and more comprehensive conversation about, about health in general. Yeah. So How did,
0: um, traveling bring that to light to you?
1: um, well, part of it, I mean, uh, like a big part of it was, I guess, talking to my husband's family. His family is from Nicaragua. He was mm-hmm. the first kid. He's a fam- um, There's eight of them total, brothers and sisters, and he was the first to be born in Costa Rica. The family's from Nicaragua. Um, so I really just, talking to his family members and his family in Costa Rica and in Nicaragua, um and learning about like the the migration patterns with between Nicaragua and, and Costa Rica and how people were coming to Costa Rica from Nicaragua because their their political climate is really unstable and, you know, especially after the Nicaraguan War in, in the eighties and um, I believe in the eighties, right? Exact years, I don't remember. But a lot of Costa Ricans came, or Nicaraguans came to Costa Rica because it was a lot safer, mm-hmm. and there were more jobs and things. And it's still happening now, especially right now. The Nicaraguan, you know, there's people are being killed in the streets. It's really yeah. like going to shit again. Um, but I so talking to his family members and doing my own research about the ways that women coming from Nicaragua were treated in Costa Rica and denied access to healthcare even though Costa Rica has a really um uh prides itself on its universal healthcare system and it's you know the best healthcare system in Central America and things like that but um if you didn't have papers or if you were just um people knew that you were Nicaraguan there was such a um uh bias against Nicaraguans, yeah. um, and they weren't able to access, you know, any healthcare that they needed. Yeah. Um, and so, and how that impacted, I did some research about just how that impacted, you know, teen pregnancy rates and, um, and just it was completely disempowering, you know? And so seeing how that is, you know, and we're talking about, or we talked about earlier about like how different issues are interconnected, mm-hmm. right? So this is an immigration issue. This is sexism. Right. This is racism because Nicaraguans were seen as, um, you know, they're they're darker skinned and they're, you yeah. know, and and really how a lot of I think Mexicans are viewed in the United States. So, mm-hmm. so I just I guess just my awareness of that um, increased, and I became really interested in. And learning more and learning more about how it what was happening in the United States because, yeah. um, you know, I could see like I said a lot of similarities between the way that immigrants were treated in Costa Rica right. and the way that they're treated here in the yeah. United States.
0: Mm-hmm. So then you went to school, for yeah, that, and then mm-hmm. how long were you in school for that?
1: So I was there for about a year and a half in mm-hmm. program and for um, and it was it's a really really wonderful program. It it wasn't. Um it was really focused on um, identifying these systems of oppression yeah. that are at work and you know and how capitalism feeds into um, uh, people's access to health care and neoliberalism, how that just perpetuates the cycle of all of these things that we're seeing um, mm-hmm. in you know access to health care for immigrants and the way that immigrants are treated and you know the way that just, people in general are that, um, healthcare is not seen as a right in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a really wonderful program. Um, and at the end of it, I had to do like a final project type of thing. So I got connected with a birth center there in Corvallis and it wasn't actually this, they didn't have a space yet, but it was, um, there were midwives and, and like some local people who starting to do work community work even before they had it since opened they have like that birth center there now but it wasn't even a space yet but they wanted to do a um, doula training for women who speak Spanish Mm -hmm. so for bilingual people because there are a lot of um, migrant workers in that area of Oregon and you know it was identified we did like focus groups bringing um spanish or spanish speakers uh, primarily mexican women who lived in the area and and just identify and talking to them about their birth experience and their experience with their kids and it was identified that you know having this doula support would be really beneficial Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of so, the most effective framework, right, is having people from the community serve people from the community. So, um, the birth center got funds to put on a birth doula training and a, a postpartum doula training for women, for migrant workers, for people who speak Spanish from the community to to serve their own families and community. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was, since I speak Spanish, I was brought on as, um, like, that was my project to organize those two trainings. Okay. And I had never thought about becoming a doula before, mostly because the doula trainings generally are so expensive, mm-hmm. and I hadn't had kids yet, and so I didn't really um, think that that was something that I would be interested in, but I was able to take it. And actually during the postpartum training, I think the first day of the postpartum doula training, I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. So. It was really timely, it yeah. was really an interesting experience how, how that worked out.
0: Yeah, can you define what a doula is for those that might not be familiar? Yeah, sure, thanks. So So
1: a doula is a support person, and, and the definition of doula work has really expanded a lot. I mean, there's, there's like death doulas, people who support mm-hmm. um, people during the process of dying oh, wow. and their family members. Um, There's abortion doulas, so people who support um, people who are having abortion, Uh, and it's not medical support, it's emotional, physical support, um, helping connect with people with different um, resources in the community. So a birth doula is generally there, well, meets with the pregnant person, um, you know, maybe about twice during pregnancy to just get... To get to know them and also to explore what is their vision for their birth experience. What um, are their fears related to birth? What are their what is their personal history? Things that might come up during the birth experience. Um, also, how do you like to um, how would you like to be supported? So, what um, when you're stressed out, what do you like to do? You know. Do, do you like getting a massage or does the idea of like somebody touch you touching yeah. you freak you out? Things like that. And then so the doula will get an idea of how best to support that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it's, it's just being there for them throughout the whole birth experience. Mm-hmm. And knowing that there's somebody there the entire time. Yeah, and
0: after the birth experience. The yeah, person?
1: so birth doulas will be there usually, you know, I mean it depends on every birth, but mm-hmm. maybe about for an hour after the birth. Um, and then they will do, you like, a, a postpartum home visit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And some birth doulas are also postpartum doulas. So postpartum doulas is what I ended up doing. Um, and that is going into somebody's home after having a baby, after they had a baby. and And being there for, you know, it might be all night. I would do, like, three or four hour blocks during the day. And just providing physical support, like doing laundry and and cooking or, you know, doing dishes, things like that, um, maybe watching the baby while, you know, while the parents can take a shower or take a nap or something like that, and, and also just being there and sitting there with the parent, you know, a lot of what I did was just saying, yep, that's normal, that's normal, you know, just sort of reassuring, (laughs) like, this is all, everything you're experiencing is normal, yeah, um, we might not realize that. Right.
0: So it's really helpful to have someone there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to know, you know, even if you have a lot of family members, a lot of times the family is then so focused on the baby that the birthing parent can feel sort of, I mean, I know I did. I had this great support system, but I felt like I had a lot of issues with breastfeeding that I think it was just because the emphasis, you know, during pregnancy, the, emphasis, the focus is on the pregnant person the whole yeah. time, right? And then it sort of shifts. It's like, okay, well, you already had the baby, right. so... And you're, you're just yeah.
0: forgotten yeah. about Yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh,
1: you just go for your six-week checkup after, and, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But there's so much there to uh, physical healing and emotional healing, especially now, you know, there's... I, I just, you know, I think the stat now is one in three um, women have reported experiencing some type of trauma during their birth. So, I mean, processing the birth can be um, a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And so doulas are there to really hold space. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what, what of your experience of being a doula, how did that affect you as a mother? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question.
1: Question. As a mother, I don't know if I've really changed anything that. Like um, how you've well, I think it made me more confident
0: mm-hmm.
1: with my second kid. You know, because I so I had Sahara in twenty thirteen, and then I think I started my business Novadula and lactation services. I think when she was about nine months old or something. So I had already gone through that postpartum experience and not knowing what the hell I'm doing and I had a lot of breastfeeding issues um and I hadn't had a lot of experience with babies at all I like never babysat as a kid I never really um like I'm never really I'm not really into babies (laughs) (laughs) I mean like babies are great and I definitely I appreciate them more now but I was never like into Mm -hmm. babies you know so my husband, on the, other line, on the other hand, he loves babies, and babies always love him. So that's why I agreed to, you know, okay, we can have kids. Yeah. Because if I screw it up, at least I know that you'll be a good father. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so I think definitely uh, as a postpartum doula and, and seeing how different people, um, you know, care for their kids and, um, and navigate that process of becoming a parent... Really helped me feel more confident as a parent, especially the second time around with my son. Yeah, um, and also just you know now I just see how silly it is when parents are judging each other and you know like the quote unquote mommy wars. It's so dumb, mm-hmm. and it's really I don't think it really exists. It's like such a, it's just it's a a huge media tactic, really mm-hmm. to to like pit women against each other.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, a lot of formula is sold with these commercials that that say, it's the mommy wars, we just have to, you know, support families. And that message that we should support all kinds of mothers and all kinds of families is important, but it's commercialized and it's, um, and really that's not, I don't know if... If you know the Mommy War commercial that came yeah, out I like a couple years it. ago. Yeah, it's just it's just perpetuating the idea of the Mommy Wars. It's mm-hmm. like we're not really... I don't think most mothers are against other mothers, yeah. you know? it's We're all in it together, and everybody does the best they can. And the families that I worked for, I saw they all raise their kids differently. They all you know, um, cared for themselves differently. They all managed the household differently and had different kinds of support and you just do the best you can, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think it definitely, it did teach me compassion for other, other ways of being a parent.
0: Yeah. You know? So did you continue your work as a doula after you became a mother?
1: I yeah, so I started the business when Sarah was about 9 months old and then I did it for um maybe a year and a half or something, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Time is not my my strong suit. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh and then but I realized that about 50% of the time I really loved it and I was really there supporting the parents. Um And about 50% of the time I felt like a nanny. And I think part of it is there in our society right now, people aren't really sure what a postpartum doula does. And Mm -hmm. I think some people think that it's sort of like a nanny. Um, And some postpartum doulas are like nannies. And that's great, but that's not the role that I wanted to play. Like I said, I never babysat before. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to be babysitting now, you know. And um, so I realized what I really loved was the breastfeeding support. And that piece is... Is really why I got into being a postpartum doula yeah. because of my own breastfeeding journey. Because mm-hmm. I ended up with um, mastitis in both breasts that that then progressed to abscesses and had to be drained. I have three scars on my breast now, and then and Sahara nursed through it all and she ended up breastfeeding until Rio was born. She was almost four years old and it was great, but. But it was really challenging, and yeah. I had this great support system. We were living with my parents at the time, so my dad's a gynecologist, you know, yeah. and my mom had breastfed all three of us. And Mario's wonderful and so supportive. So I and I was trained as a doula already. So I figured if every if I'm having these issues, then probably everybody's having right. some issues, yeah. you know. So I realized really the breastfeeding piece is what I loved. Mm-hmm. So I um, reached out to. Dr. Ann Witt, and she's based. She's has breastfeeding medicine of Northeast Ohio in South Euclid, and she's one of I think the only, well, one of the only breastfeeding medicine physicians in the state. I think the only one in Northeast Ohio, to my knowledge, and I ended up volunteering with them, and shadowing, you know, the lactation consultants there and getting. I needed a thousand clinical hours in order to sit for the lactation consultant exam Mm -hmm. so I did that and I got a job at Metro as a breastfeeding peer helper and I was there for like a year or so um, as part of a grant funded program doing like prenatal breastfeeding education so yeah so I I guess after it took me maybe two or three years and I volunteered with breastfeeding USA which is this organization where you can do like support group, they train you, they have a really wonderful training program, and then you can do support groups, and that helps you get your clinical hours, too. Yeah. So I was able to sit for the board exam, um, uh, I guess, two years ago, I think, mm-hmm. so, so I've been now a lactation consultant for, I, I think, going on two years.
0: Yeah, so in that time, have you seen any changes at all with the issue? Um, Any is it going in a good direction?
1: Lactation support. Well, I mean, it was just—is
0: that what you mean in lactation support? Yeah, I just women and yeah their experience with breastfeeding. I guess. Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some really good things that are changing. Like, I think it was Utah that was just was it Utah? Well, this summer they announced that finally all fifty states now have uh, protection for breastfeeding in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw actually this morning that now there is a bill that was just signed that all airports have to have, um, lactation rooms or Mm -hmm. pumping rooms. So there's, uh, and you know, like with the Affordable Care Act, now Mm -hmm. everybody can, is entitled to a breast pump, um, and things like that. So that has been really beneficial. Um, I see a little bit of a shift, especially with the the rule now everyone needs a breast pump, which is really important, right. and I'm and I'm grateful for that. You know, I was able to get a great breast pump for free,
0: yeah. And a lot of
1: people were able to, but um, you know, it's sort of like a band aid because what would be a lot better is you know having uh, a family leave, you know, after having a baby and mm-hmm. having those kinds of protections. Which, you know, right. we're the only um, industrialized nation that doesn't have that type of protection of uh, paid leave after, after having giving birth. So, you know, I think that... Yeah, I think it's sort of a band-aid. And it also has become... what I think it's starting to... Um, mm, perpetuate, like, the commodification of breast milk. Mm-hmm. You know, so I talk to a lot of people now... Or, who are, have the question, okay, I have my breast pump, when do I have to start pumping? Right. And a lot of, and you, you know, you pump so you have milk after you go back to work or school, or you pump if you're gonna be separated from your baby, or you pump if breastfeeding isn't working, and you know, some people exclusively pump, but not everybody has to pump. Right. But I see now, um, parents are, breastfeeding parents are so fixated on like the output, like, okay, I need to, Build up a stash of three thousand ounces in my yeah. freezer, um, and and it's sort of when I mean, nobody really most okay some people need that, but yeah. most people don't need to have this huge freezer stash yeah. of milk, um, and that really is not. Uh, yeah, the milk is a big part of breastfeeding, obviously, but there's so many other benefits, and and breastfeeding is a relationship. You know it's a relationship that you build with your baby, and it's so much more than just the product, that milk. But I feel like now now that the emphasis is on the pumps and you know and everybody has a pump, and I feel like that has really placed the emphasis on on milk as a product as right. opposed to you know the mother, baby, <coughs> the breastfeeding parent, the baby as like their own little ecosystem mm. and that rela- supporting that relationship instead yeah. of just milking yourself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. We're not cows. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's how you feel. Yeah. I mean, that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, pumping your milk. And for a lot of people, it's not as effective. For most people, it's not as effective to maintain your milk supply. Yeah. And then, so there's, there's a lot of stress added mm-hmm. to that, you know? Right. If you really... Are focusing on that output on the product as opposed to the
0: whole relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So you've had the She Collective for the past year now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how has all of these things—being a doula, being a lactation consultant—how did that push you into creating this space? So I, um, I had
1: been envisioning something like She Collective for a while because mm-hmm. I, I felt like. As somebody who was there during the postpartum period, as a postpartum doula and as a lactation consultant, and so much of that experience of birth, of breastfeeding, it requires us to trust our bodies in a way that we've never, most people have never experienced. And we've been told throughout our lives, you know, as as women, that our bodies are going to sort of betray us at any time, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're you know, you're going to get your period and that sucks. And then you just medicate yourself because, um, you know, it's like your body is, is torturing you and things like that. And, and, or trying to get pregnant. If you struggle with getting pregnant, it's your body's failure. Mm -hmm. And and you, it, I think we're told so often that you just can't trust your body because our bodies are going to betray us at any time. And then you have a baby Going through that experience of birth, which really requires so much trust in your body's ability, and then breastfeeding, which is again you have to trust that your body is going to do what it is biologically yeah. new to do, you know. And most, the vast majority of people um, who give birth are able to lactate, are able to breastfeed, but um, but but a lot of the problem comes from not not understanding your body and not trusting your body Mm -hmm. so it just didn't really make sense to me that we're told at that time to trust your body but we're not told any other time so I felt like I we needed a space where we're told at different times in our life um how you you know how powerful our bodies are and that we should be able to that we can trust our bodies and and that we should learn about our bodies, you know? It's not just... Our bodies are not... Our body knowledge, excuse me, is not just something that's reserved for doctors. It shouldn't yeah. be like that, you know? Mm-hmm. We should even... Like, my five-year-old, she should... And I'd teach her about her body, but, you know, she's, if I didn't, she wouldn't get that anywhere no, else, yeah. you know? I mm-hmm. mean... So, yeah, I think that...
0: There's a need for... There's
1: a need for yeah. that. And and to, to remove the stigma of talking about our bodies. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought, well, I would love to be able to open a space that ha- provides classes and opportunities to connect with our bodies. And mm-hmm. so that's why we offer yoga, um, because, you know, I was, like I said, my mom has been teaching yoga for, I think, 25 years or more. Yeah, about 25 years now. And... Um, so I've been doing yoga since I was a little kid. And so, and I've realized how much it has helped me develop my body awareness. Um, and then talking with my mom about, um, how she can tell in class who's new to yoga based on, on their own body awareness about how their awareness of how they're moving their bodies. Mm -hmm. And, and I think yoga is such a great way of building that body awareness and feeling the strength in your body. So we offer that here. We offer meditation because that's another way of of um, learning about your body and, and the power of your mind and quieting your mind. Um, and then, all, I mean, all different kinds of classes and, and support groups. We have a support group for um, breastfeeding parents, for people who've experienced birth trauma. Um, we have a prenatal yoga that just started a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, we have a lot of a lot of different offerings yeah. for kids we have writing and art workshops because you know being creative is another great way to learn about your body and I think I'm really encouraging we we started a membership over the summer where people can you know buy a membership and have access to different types of classes because I think um, it can be really powerful as you develop that body awareness in yoga and and then try, like, a painting class. You might not have ever thought that you were a painter or really? that you were creative or you could write. But I think that body awareness that you develop in different areas of your life or can impact different areas of your life.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So,
1: yeah, learning about your body in, in many different ways, I think, can be really empowering.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're running a business, but mm-hmm. this is also this kind of work is something that you care deeply about and you want to make a change. So how do you differentiate um, doing that work and having a business around it? Do you know what I mean? Like not yeah. trying to capitalize on... Yeah. <laughs> totally. So what is your experience with that? Yeah,
1: okay. it's been interesting. Yeah, because I would really just like to offer offer everything for free. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want... Um, Money to be a barrier. So, uh, like for a lot of the classes, and maybe I probably need to like express this more. But um, for a lot of the classes, I say you know if money is an issue, or is a barrier to attending. Just email me and you can register. And then we have like uh, donation-based yoga and things like that, so people can can come and take part even if they don't have the funds. Um, I actually have been exploring recently about turning it into a cooperative mm-hmm. um, for a couple reasons, because I think uh, this, it's sort of, in a way, sort of already operating like a cooperative um, in terms of, of I have, like <coughs> there's independent contractors yeah. who are coming and running their own classes, mm-hmm. and I'm just sort of in charge of maintaining the space yeah. um, and the schedule and things like that. Um, but I don't want the space to be dependent on me, you know, and if a couple of years I try to, you know, we decide to move or, you know, ideally it would be like go to Costa Rica for a few months or something yeah. like that. I don't want the space to close because yeah, I'm not even, and it doesn't, it's sort of silly to me, like, uh, I'm not even the one teaching the classes, you know, it's, it's, it's not dependent on me, but, um, the way it's structured right now, and scheduling, and financially, and stuff, it is dependent on, on me running the back backside of it. Yeah. But I think if we could structure it as a co op, um, you know, where everyone has buy in, I think it could even develop um, to be something even stronger and even more impactful. Mm-hmm. So I've been um, in touch with a couple of organizations to do some. You know, I just did a webinar, and like there's some consulting. There's some great or like national organizations that provide free consulting to um, businesses that want to become co-ops. Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I've just been having that conversation with some instructors who are part of the She Collective already, mm-hmm. and I I think that's the direction I want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, to you know, and I could still be the support behind the scenes person, yeah. but where it's really led by the people in the community who want to become members yeah
0: so how do we go about making this work more accessible to people that maybe don't have the privilege or Mm -hmm. the knowledge about it because I feel like a lot of women's health wellness in general Mm -hmm. yoga that whole world is only accessible to one group of people so how do we really make an impact on a wider scale
1: yeah that's a great question. I think connecting well I'd like to connect more like with the schools in Lakewood. Yeah. Um and and connect more with with the with organizations that are doing really important work in Cleveland in general. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, we have this space on the west side of Lakewood. It's generally a more, you know, well-off area. Yeah. Um I originally actually had a space that I wanted to where I wanted to have She Collective, it was in this warehouse on Berea in Detroit, across from the Rapid Station over over there, and I w- was really excited about that. It, it didn't work out, and this ended up being a lot better, because I live right near here, and and I like being in a church where there's already a sense of community, mm-hmm. and this, this um, part of, or this aspect of the church, it's called Lakewood Abbey, and there's there's like midwifery practices upstairs. There's a nonprofit. Uh, there's a therapist upstairs. A co-working mm-hmm. space, so it is. I feel like part of the community. Like yeah. we talked, I talked about at the beginning. Like I really want to be more grounded in my yeah. community. Um, so I think I could. I know I could be definitely doing a better job of connecting with other organizations who are doing um, work that is is connected to women's health or. You know, working with women. So um, one thing, like, we have... I helped launch a few years ago um, the Northeast Ohio Doula Collective, and it was a collective of, of doulas who are who provide uh, birth and postpartum doula support for low-income women and families for free. So that's something that I'd like to help yeah. develop more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think that there's just... There's a lot more... Collaboration and outreach that I could be doing, and I'm hoping to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also am, am building this platform, that is going to be solely online, and it's going to be specifically for professionals like birth workers, mm. um, and yoga instructors, people who work, um, in the field of like body education and body awareness, and it's going to help. Um, well, our our mission is to like expose the the assumptions and false foundations that, that perpetuate inequity in the fields of health and wellness and, um, and support professionals and practitioners to, to start thinking about wellness in a different way yeah. and really um, transform work to be more client-directed um, and more holistic in the way that, you know, is even if you only do birth work, My opinion is that doulas should know about, you know, what a healthy period looks like and what pelvic floor health, how to support pelvic floor health and and healthy sexuality and sort of all aspects of health. I don't think that all doulas need to be specifically for birth. I Mm -hmm. think that that's really limiting. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. So I, I think, I'm hoping to... I'm imagining this online platform to be sort of like a virtual she collective, in that, and bringing other people to to offer online courses. And I'm working with um, a person out in Arizona, I believe that's where they live, Um, to do like an potentially launch like an inclusive language course about how to use inclusive language in your in your practice, and how powerful that can be. Absolutely. Not just mm-hmm. changing your language superficially, but understanding why it's so harmful when you misgender somebody or yeah. when you use you know language that's that's incorrect. So I really um, want to be in a place to support people um, like them who are doing these really impactful, um, pr- providing really impactful, um, courses and, and teaching opportunity learning opportunities for mm-hmm. professionals
0: that's great mm-hmm. yeah so I guess I want to wrap up with talking a little bit more about what we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. so with basically just with what's going on right now what happened last week with Brett Kavanaugh um, what can we do as a collective of women um, that, have privilege that are able to do the work. What kind of work should we be doing? Do you mm-hmm.
1: think?
0: And how does how is she collective kind of a part of that also?
1: Yeah. So I think um, it's really human to human work that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, I learned from. This local person who's doing really incredible work named Carmen Lane. And they just presented at this workshop or at this um, conference for birth workers about, well, about a lot of things. But one thing that they said that really stuck out to me and has been sort of a guiding principle for me since I, I listened to, this, to the talk, to the discussion is about how we can't leverage privilege because privilege is um, it is part of the oppressive system, mm-hmm. right? And instead of when you are advocating for somebody, like when a doula is advocating for somebody that they're supporting in that moment at a birth or something and speaking up for that person... It's not that they're actually leveraging privilege. It's that they're stepping up as a human being to be there for another human being yes. in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has really, since I heard Carmen reframe it like that, it makes so much sense to me. You know, mm-hmm. it's if we leverage privilege, then that is um, su- supporting that framework in a way. Yeah, like, in order sense. to get things done, I need to have this privilege. But that's not true, right? It's really. Going above and beyond those systems, or um, destroying those systems by saying I am just a human being, being with this, supporting this other human being, holding space for this other human being. You know, so I've been thinking about how empowerment, empowering other people, is really not doing something for them. It's it's getting out of their way, right? It's it's giving them space to. Um, build their own agency and autonomy and do the things that, um, they need to do for themselves. Right. Um, so I guess getting back to your question, I think what we can do is have more in-person conversations, hard conversations, um, start really digging deep into what are our reactions to things that that put up barriers and walls between people like defensiveness um and you know white white fragility and white tears are really mm-hmm. powerful tools for you know white supremacy so yeah. so moving beyond fragility and and defensiveness and saying okay i'm willing to learn i want right. to learn um and and that really requires a level of comfort with vulnerability that I think, I know I have a lot of difficulty with being vulnerable and making mistakes. And but I think and having empathy for myself. If I don't have empathy for myself, I'm not going to be able to really have empathy for other people. Yeah. So I think that that human, that humanity needs to. Um, be emphasized
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I I'm, I'm not sure how to how to do that but yeah. I think I I try to do it in my own life you mm-hmm. know and try to have honest real conversations and and be aware of ways that I am creating barriers between me and other people by the way that I react or things that I do that's harmful absolutely yeah self-awareness
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I think what you said earlier about not leveraging privilege is really important because I guess I was thinking since we, since some of us have more privilege than others, mm-hmm. then we should use that as fuel and power, but I guess, um, I don't
1: know. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's, <laughs> it's, and I mean, part of that, yeah, if you have more money, yeah. then I think then you can think about ways that you can, you know, support organizations or individuals that need that money in order yeah. to do really important work. But I don't know if that is. I think that's being aware of um, ways that you can support other people. I know I mean, I, I'm still working it out mentally yeah. myself. Mm-hmm. You know, because I get. I mean that is privilege, but but that's also just recognizing your humanness, yeah. right? And saying, "Okay, as a human, I am really blessed in this way or this way, and how can I put myself in a position to to support other people?" Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? And and listen to the needs that other people have, right? right? Because I guess I mean, there's only so much we can do when we say, okay, I want this money, and I think a good way to to support such and such person or organization is to do this. But really, we should be listening to what people and organizations say that they need, Mm -hmm. right? So listen to what people are asking for. And um, even though that might seem like, you know, contrary to what you believe that they need Mm -hmm. but if they're saying that that's what they need then believing them and and say okay I'll you know if you want me to just back off and give you space I will do that Mm -hmm. you know I don't need to be the savior
0: yeah (coughs) which then that puts us above exactly yeah Yeah. and that is really
1: leveraging privilege right right? Mm -hmm. and and definitely white savior-ness is something that I've struggled with a lot in myself Mm-hmm. Trying to identify when, how am I, um, am I trying to connect with people in a really human way, or am I trying to save somebody who yeah. I think needs saving, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, cause that's so harmful and, and that just keeps these, you know, oppressive systems of power in place, right? If you're yeah. saying I'm going to save you,
0: I'm going to save you. That's right. so, that you makes know? more sense. That makes a lot of sense yeah. for sure.
1: So I don't know, it's complicated. But I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about it because Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about these things more. Right,
0: I agree, yeah. And I think anyone who has a platform in any way should definitely be talking about it. Mm -hmm. Getting the conversations out out into the open and that's something that I want to try to do more of with the podcast. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: I mean, you have a great platform for mm -hmm. that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: No. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think this is, I really love what you're doing with the podcast, and I'm excited to see how
0: it, how it develops thank over you. the next few mm-hmm. months. Yeah, thank you for having the conversation and sharing all of the knowledge that you have. Yeah, my pleasure. And how can people connect with you?
1: So I have a website. It's um, knowingshe.com. hmm and um, you can find there, you know, all information about the classes, our calendar, what we offer. Um, I'm always interested in collaborating with other individuals and organizations. So if anyone's interested in, in figuring out a way that we can support each other or, you know, offer a class here or something like that, please reach out. I'm open to any ideas. Most of the things that we've done here um, are, you know, we offer because somebody came to me and said, um, you know I want to offer this like next week we have a self-loving workshop mm. that's starting a four week series I'm really cool. excited about it it's about it's for um, people with vulvas and it's learning about your bodies and learning about masturbation and sex toys and it's going to be really interesting cool. and I think that's something that that's exactly the type of thing that I wanted to be able to offer here because mm-hmm. I don't think that's really offered and can be offered in most yeah. other places so um Yeah, so definitely anybody who has ideas about ways that we can collaborate, please reach out, knowingshe.com, or we're on Facebook with She Collective.
0: Great. Yeah, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Sam, and I'm so glad that you're all here until the very end if you enjoyed the conversation please consider sharing it on social media or even leave a review i would love to know that you are listening and would greatly appreciate your support and i hope this conversation inspired you to check out she collective it really is such a great space and i'm so grateful that it exists i will actually be teaching two classes there at the beginning of november one is a creative movement class for children, and the other is an adult movement class. I'm hoping it will be a good time for you to explore your bodies in a new way and tap into another creative outlet. So if you're interested in that, there will be a link in the show notes to find out more. And if you're interested in learning more about the She Collective, check out their website, like their Facebook page, and follow them on Instagram. And if you would like to connect with me, you can follow me on Instagram at Musroom Podcast. Join the Museroom Book Club. You can also join the Museum Club, which is the secret Facebook group, to discuss Book Club and other things about the episodes, whatever. And you can even shoot me an email to podcast at gmail.com. That is all I have for you this week, so I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Bye!